a sexy solution to a not-so-sexy problem. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. Now here are your hosts, Nick and Jake. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Mick. Welcome back to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. As usual, I'm joined by my co-host and good friend, Jake Gunderson. And for this episode, I'm excited to introduce our only panellist, who's not a RayWenderlich.com team member, Andrew Carter. Andrew is a senior software developer who has worked with some of the most recognised brands in the world, and he's kindly agreed to let us pick his brains. Now, Andrew, we like to let our guest panellist speak first. So your 20 minutes start now. What would you like to talk about? Cool. <clears throat> we literally we cover a lot of different um you know, a lot of different problems coming to us, lots of different kind of clients. One thing we've had a lot of the past few years is different kinds of field service workers or um, applications that interact with different connected devices. Um, so a kind of frequent problem that pops up is things that need to work very well without internet access or things that have a lot of like dependent operations that need to work in a certain order offline and online. So throughout the years, you've kind of been honing this sort of network stack that can handle offline dependencies, things need to repair or other things, and just kind of like a lot of really complex scenarios that need to work correctly if they're being offline or online. So I kind of want to bring up how we've solved that. We're pretty happy with how we've got it worked out. Okay, great. So is this something that you've written from scratch or is it has it got third-party yeah. dependencies like Alamo Fire or AF Networking or something so like that? So we all loved um, AF Networking. That's kind of, you know, back in the day, that's what we used for everything. Um, then we've had a few apps again come up where that didn't solve all of our problems. And so um, another guy at work had thought of this idea where he would basically have this kind of, he would take his URL request and serialize them to disk and kind of read them up as he needed them. And whether the app was either, you know, it crashed or you quit or you went offline and online, he could kind of queue them back up off disk and get them running again. That's been used in a few apps, but then we keep on getting to these more and more complex scenarios where maybe one operation depends on another operation is being successful. So say you need like an ID from a server before you can post a change to that object or something. That old system didn't really work out quite as well. So um, with an app that a friend of mine and I recently did, we kind of made this core data backed solution where we can basically have this core data object that knows about what the URL needs to go to, what kind of, you know, what's the method, is it a post or a get, how should it handle the data that it gets back, and then we can kind of watch these things get queued in a fetch results controller, and then use NSURL session to create either download, upload, or data tasks, and then those will actually, you know, they, they go off and run, when they're done, they come and call back to that operation to let the observing party know that the operation finished. And all these are cached? I assume when you're offline, so the app would function right. as if it was so, online. It would be no different for the user. Exactly. So a lot of these field service applications, like maybe guys got to go out there and order some parts or install some equipment or like maybe, you know, inspect some equipment or, you know, whatever it is it needs to do. All this stuff needs to work, be it, you know, he's out in the mountains or in a basement or just in an area with poor connectivity. The way we've got it worked out is that we have this NSBanaged object subclass that has a um, HTTP method property so it knows where it needs to go to. It has the, um, the or rather the, uh, you know, get post put. It has the URL path it needs to go to. But where it gets kind of cool is... Um, when it's, when it's done, it needs to get the data back to the observing party. So usually these days we're using either delegation or blocks for that kind of thing, but that doesn't work in this case because maybe, like you said, the application needs to kind of pretend like everything's working you know, as if you were online. So maybe the um, the view controller or whatever the, the party was that cared about the result of that request, he may not be around anymore, right? 
the app may have been quit before, so you may be in a whole other session of the application. So the way that we've handled that is um, once this operation completes, part of the um, or one of the properties on the NS Managed Object subclass is a route to call back on. So we're using um, JL routes, which is a nice wrapper on the um, you know you make your own URL scheme that gets called into your application. So we can kind of we call this custom route and say, hey, um, the data you asked for is done. Here it is. And it actually works out really well. And so we've got three different kinds of routes you can call. There's one that's a completion route. So let's say it's just a simple get for like a profile or something. When it's done, it calls back to that URL, has the data that you asked for, you've got it. But then where it gets more fun is we have preparation routes and failure routes as well. So say you have something where you create this entity and then later on you want to add something or adjust that entity. You need the ID of that from the server in order to create this put or post to it. And so what happens is before this network call gets enqueued, it'll ask it via this prepare route, hey, are you ready to go yet? And it's got a chance to then alter its JSON payload or do another kind of work that needs to do to see if it's ready to go. And it can say, yeah, I'm ready, go ahead and fire off. Or no, I'm not ready, you know, give me another 30 seconds or 60 seconds or whatever it is. So you end up with this, like, you can do your whole day's worth of work offline and then come back online and everybody that needs to go in a certain order can, you know, do it, do it in the order they're supposed to do it in. And the same thing for the failure route. If something goes up, um, we just had this generic kind of fallback failure where you'll get the error, but if you need to specifically like present something to the user or do some kind of UI interaction, if there's a failure, it'll call back this failure route with the, the JSON it got back from the server and you can then handle it however you need to handle it. I heard about a library the other day that I thought they did something cool. I'm wondering if you guys have done something similar where each uh, request has it gets saved the result of the request gets saved and then it has like a date time stamp on it and so if there's a request that needs to get called over and over again but it hasn't been you know more than a few seconds since the last time that was called the the this particular library just returns the result uh, as though it had actually completed a network request but it didn't it just pulls it from whatever the last request result was do you guys do something like that as well that's a really cool idea um we, we don't do that um that'd be a great thing to add to my little uh a little library here. But one thing that's kind of similar that we do do is we have um, different properties for whether something should cancel the previous one or not. So say you had like 10 gets while you're offline for some resource, we would cancel the oldest one and just enqueue the latest one. Because again, what's neat, there's no specific block callback waiting to happen. It's just going to be handled via that routing system. So it doesn't really matter, you know, if 11 requests get made, as long as one one comes back, you're going to be in good shape. So we make sure that we don't like duplicate work for that kind of thing. When you were putting this together, were you responsible for developing the backend as well? Or are you kind of retrofitting this into existing APIs? We were with the with the first two iterations of this, there was existing APIs. Um, with this one, we actually had the benefit of um, the client was making a brand new API from scratch. So we kind of, um, the different snags we would hit, we were able to kind of work with them to, to make sure that the way we're architecting this thing, you know, this, the server was going to be aware that sometimes this stuff is going to be offline and coming in later than, you know, ideally it would come in. So we had a lot of freedom there to kind of mold it to be exactly what we needed it to be. If you had to, before you could create a new object locally, you had to go off to the server and say, I want to create an object. And it would say, give you some metadata back or some metadata back that you would then use as part of the creation of that object locally. Right. I, I get what you're saying. Yeah. So so what what makes that hard, um, and I think kind of where you're going with that, is you end up with a lot of business logic duplicated, right? So if there's, you know, any kind of validation that needs to happen or any kind of, like, business rules that has to exist, if, if the app needs to work 100% offline and online, you've got to have that business logic in two spots. We've had a lot of challenges with that, and we're, we've been kind of discussing different ways we could um, – this is where tools like Xamarin and that sort of thing come up where we, maybe we can make – 
because it, it sucks to have to kind of you know, implement business logic on the front end and the back end, then potentially other front ends as well. So we've been looking into um, different solutions with JavaScript, maybe the Xamarin to kind of like share that kind of business logic. So maybe that, that kind of metadata that needs to be created, you could basically share that kind of logic and push out updates to everybody at the same time. You've kind of touched on this a little, but I'm I'm interested in a little more specifically the architecture of how this works from the perspective of, say, the view controller, what part of the view controller is seen? Because in a simple app, you're going to make a network call directly from the view controller and have a block in, in, written in the view controller that handles the response. How does that look in, in this more sophisticated case with sure. your library? Definitely. So so a standard workflow, let's take like um, let's take like getting a list of, um, let's, say, let's say we're making a Twitter app. We're getting a list of tweets, right? So um, you've got this API call you would make. You would say, um, okay, I've got this network operation object. Um, my HTTP path is going to be, you know, slash tweets, whatever. My method's going to be get. I'll say my completion route is going to be like my URL scheme slash got tweets or whatever it's going to be. You created this network operation. There's a fetch results controller that's listening for these new network operations to be completed. It's going to pick it up. It's going to make sure it has everything it needs to make an NSURL session operation for it. This is where that preparation block comes in. So if it needed a call to do more preparation, it would do that. But let's say everything is ready to go. It, gonna, it makes an um, NSURL session data task. The task comes back. Now we can you know, deserialize the JSON. We can look at that operation for the, um, the path that it should call when it's complete. We'll call that path of the custom scheme with the data we got back from the server. And then what the way that eventually propagates to the view controller is you've got NS fetch results controllers just ready to be showing that listing of tweets. So we have, we have this kind of like router data per class. So that class is listening for any kind of any kind of change with that. It'll pick it up, import it, and then, then you'll see that in your fetch results controllers. So I've got a couple of questions. The first one um, was how you handle failures. So you kind of touched on it there, but I mean, the reason I'm asking is obviously if I'm out in the field and I'm, you know, documenting whatever the work is that I'm doing and I might not have a network connection for several hours, uh, it, that's a very different scenario to, say, uploading a, an image to Twitter where I would get a response back immediately saying, oh, you know, it's failed, try again. I would hit the button again and, and away you go. I, I don't want to have to sort of recreate all that work that I'm documenting throughout my day when I come to go back online, you know, if there's a failure. So I was wondering how you how you handle failures. Sure. In the different applications we've had, some, I guess in, in the most re- recent one, what we've done is there we've kind of categorized what kind of failures we have. So there's some things that we consider to be okay to fail. So let's say you change your profile picture or, you know, something kind of, you know, not that big of a deal. If that fails, oh, well, whatever, you know, who cares? Um, for the more bigger, important stuff, let's say you've um, you've surveyed some some building or you've you've you know adjusted some kind of equipment on the field that needs to get up to the server. But if there's any kind of malformed JSON or something's gone wrong with the server and just for whatever reason that JSON payload didn't make it up there, we have a bunch of retry mechanisms where it'll keep trying over and over again. But let's just say that for whatever reason this thing ain't going up. We've got this whole system that where at the end of the day, we kind of collect. The great thing is because all these things are backed by core data objects, we can query for all the ones that have failed to go up and then have passed that retry threshold. We can take that JSON payload, turn it into kind of one JSON document that describes all the things that have failed during the day, and then send that to the server in a different endpoint. So the server is able to, like, the person who was working was able to keep on working throughout their day and everything looked like it was going okay. And then none of the, none of the data was lost because it's in this JSON document. Now it does take some human intervention. Like someone's got to go look at that and then kind of recreate whatever needed to happen on the back end. But the good thing is the technician's able to keep working and you know, no data is lost if there is any kind of failure. 
Oh, I mean, that sounds really cool. So, so there's always this option of, is it, well, it's almost reconciliation, I suppose. Right. Yeah. And another kind of neat sort of side note on that is we've, um, in, in I think three of the applications we've done a solution like this, we've even given you kind of like a view into what's going on there. So we'll have like a table view backed by a fetch tools controller that's watching these network operations. We can show you ones that are, you know, here's ones that are complete. Here's ones that are in progress. Here's one that are, you know, maybe processing into core data where the results were. And then here's the ones that are failed and you can retry them or you can look and see why they failed. So it kind of gives you this, you know, debugging view, but also kind of like a where am I throughout the day kind of view. And um, because it's all backed by core data, it's just super easy to look at. The the other question that I had was, I was wondering if you were taking advantage of any of the sort of background modes in iOS. Oh, so, definitely. Yeah. So, well, that, I, I wanted to pick your brains on that because I was wondering if I've been out in the field all day and I've had no network, you know, I've, I've been working out in some remote place somewhere, I've not had a network connection, but I've been documenting whatever it is I've been doing. Like, at what point does the system recognize that I'm back online and start trying to upload all this stuff does it does it require user intervention to do that or is it something that you trigger automatically because you're taking advantage of background modes sure so this was kind of the coolest part um when we first made this we were just using normal old nsql requests and just popping them off um but then we ended up switching to either using upload tasks download tasks or data tasks depending upon which kind of you know whatever kind of operation you were doing the beautiful thing about the um data or the upload task and download tasks is that if you background the app, if the device is turned off and turned on, if you go in and out of internet connectivity, is iOS just kind of takes care of all that for you. So you can queue up as many network operations as you want, and then once you come back online, those things kick right back off and start going again. So we did almost no work at all to kind of make that functionality work. There's a few callbacks you have to kind of respect to make that happen, but that was the amazing part about it, was that there was very little work we had to do to kind of make the thing work going offline and online. And I was super impressed with the ability for, like, if, if, I guess if the user force quits the app, it, it stops that functionality until they reopen it again. But if they like turn the device off and turn the device back on, those things still kick back up and start going again, which I think is awesome. Um, and again, because all this stuff is backed up in core data, you don't lose anything. So if it, if it had gotten half the request, it can resume back off where it was you know, halfway through and it doesn't have to request from the beginning again. Okay, final question. I'm sure Jake's dying to, to jump in. I was wondering if there was any um, predefined amount of time where this is okay but then once you get beyond that time you're kind of too far out of sync with the server so like if i was using this app for a week and i had no internet connection but i was still documenting everything does that work just as well as if i was only remote for a couple of hours right so we um with one of the applications we did there's this concept of a shift and you kind of have to be online to complete that shift there's like this reconciliation that happens at the very end of the day so in that case it's like at, at most, you're going to be offline for one day. Then at some point, you got to get on the internet before you can start your next day. With another application we did that was like, it was it's, it's kind of worked with another connected device and kind of queues up things that have happened on that device. With that, there was no there's no limit on how long you're offline. In, in one of the applications, all the calls were kind of dependent and related to each other and needed to be kind of grouped up. And this one, things are more separate, so it didn't really matter as much if you know you could send something you know, a week after it happened, it was going to be okay. There was not as much room for, I guess there's not as much business logic there to kind of mess things up. So um, it depends on the scenario. So the the typical thing that I see in terms of the relationship between the networking stack and the data model is that the view controller will kick off a network request and then handle receiving the network request. And if it's, if there's an error, you know, it handles alerting the UI about that error. And if there's not, then it'll handle moving the data from the network request into the data model. 
But I've also seen considered uh, using the idea where you just talk, you put the networking, you push it down into the data model layer. And so you just talk to the data model from your view controller and then your data model handles the networking and the, the view controller doesn't necessarily need to know about how the networking is working other than if there's an error and, and the user needs to be alerted. In that case, you'd need to push that back through. What, what do you think kind of the pros and cons? What have you done in the past? Do you, do you have an opinion about that? Oh, definitely. So this is one of the things that like every time I start an application, I've got some great new idea how, how I'm going to do this process better. One of the kind of funnier bits when I'm working on more, you know, my personal pet projects, like a little Reddit client or something, I tend to think the like you're saying, like the view controller is kind of more responsible for spawning the request and then handling the response and parsing it and adding it into core data, whatever your persistence layer is. That's a much more obvious and simple kind of workflow. So I think for a more, you know, a more toy or more fun small app, that's a great way to do it because it's very obvious how it works. It's really easy to find where the interactions are happening and it's super easy to handle things like errors or, you know, if something goes wrong. But then in the with the bigger and bigger and bigger apps and apps like this where that view controller may not even be around anymore, but you still want to consume that data, that's when it gets more complex. I think like the first few apps I made, it was exactly that from the view controller and kind of did all the work. And then we started moving towards this more like coordination effort where you would kind of ask this other object, hey, I'd like the most recent this. And then it goes and gets the most recent that, puts it in core data, and then the view controller would then see it via either a core data notification or, you know, fetch results controller. But then, you know, the problem comes up of how do you handle those errors? Like how do you propagate, you know, network offline or, you know, bad requests, those kind of things. And, you know, notification center seems like an obvious answer. Then that gets kind of gross and dirty when you're flinging notifications around for all that. So you start using callbacks, but then the callbacks get kind of weird. If maybe that view controller goes away, then no one's there to handle it. So, um, again, it's like the more, the more robust you make your solution, the more complex it gets. And um, I was actually just joking with a friend that um, I'm working with this Reddit client right now. And uh, one thing that is kind of fun is you get to refresh this authentication token after about an hour if you've been out of the app long enough. So it's like if you come in the app and we've got to fire off three different requests, but then you have this problem of I need to refresh the token first. It's like, do we hold those requests in a queue somewhere? Do we call back with three errors? So you need, you need to re-log in. And this like this kind of queue solution that we talked of with this other app that I did solves that problem where you could have those three requests wait for a first request that they're dependent upon to go refresh that token. So you can solve the problem there, but now you've got this big, giant, complex system you know, solving this little tiny Reddit client problem. So it's, it's a good question. And I feel like it's, you know, a right tool for the job. Application needs to work offline. If there's a lot of dependencies that happen, then these more complex sort of like coordination systems are great. If it's a more simple application that you're just kind of trying to put together and it's not that big or involved, then letting the view controller do most of the work is, you know, it's a very fast, easy, and simple way to do it. I think it's important as well. It like it would be also dependent on, on the data that's being consumed by that view controller if that data is needed elsewhere. Because that, if it's not, and that view controller, or if it is rather, and that view controller is responsible for requesting and, and you know deserializing and loading up your models and things um, from within that view controller, and that view controller goes away, then you don't have access to that data anymore. And I think because I'm a strong proponent of talking to the model and letting the model request the data, because if that's a long-lived um, instance that you can pass around, then you can kind of cache right. that request as well so the next time you want it the next like if you back out of that view controller and go back in like you can just 
like reload that data straight away from the cache rather than having to hit the network again, which I think is a is a is oh a for sure. Advantage. And I think you can. It, it, it's interesting how the more the more robust you make it, there's so many like once you start doing that caching kind of stuff, you almost you end up with a much better experience, but it also gives you much more kind of interesting bugs. One of the hardest things to do is like to cache things, right? Like when do you decide it's been long enough to get it, ask for it again? Um, how do you know if it's stale? Those kind of questions. So you you introduce yourself to more to more problems but if you can pull it off right like nothing feels better than an app that's super snappy and doesn't request the same resource over and over and over again uh, just one thing as well that i wanted because you've mentioned um request dependencies a couple of times just before because we are running out of time um what are you, are you using like ns operation subclasses where they can be dependent on one or can you yeah, is that is that is that the route um, you've gone? I now? wish we had found a way to use NS operations for it. That's like one of the kind of retrospective things that we were talking about with this, because NS operations is an amazing way to handle dependencies. Um, but the way we've kind of made this work is again one of the you have those three different kind of routes that all your network operations will call the preparation one, the completion one, and the failure one. So in the preparation one, again, let's say you've got a um, a task to update some given resource, and you've got another task to create that resource. So when both those things go to get queued. Um, the one that's going to update the resource is going to, the preparation route gets called. It can look at that kind of core data representation of the object that's going to go update and say, do I have a server ID or have I been posted to the server or, you know, should do some kind of check to make sure that that resource exists on the server. And if it doesn't exist yet, like if it doesn't have that ID that it needs to make that post successfully, it can say, ask me again in 60 seconds. And then it can go back and check again. But like you said, if we could have that work where basically we can say, hey, this operation, don't even start until this operation is complete. That'd be a more clean, better way to do it. So moving into the future, I'd like to kind of move that into my system. Okay, and I think that, that about wraps up your 20 minutes, Andrew. Uh, thanks for sharing that with us. It's always great to get an insight sort of from from the real world. We talk a lot about theory and hypothetical, but, you know, to get somebody in who's doing this stuff day to day, I think it's really awesome. Good. Now, before we move on to Jake's topic, I wanted to take this opportunity to thank Willow Tree for sponsoring this episode of the com podcast. Willow Tree is a new breed mobile engagement partner focused on creating great software to improve users' lives and they're hiring. Much more than a mobile app development company, they work with clients such as GE, Johnson & Johnson, Pepsi, and the NBA to create the best mobile experiences possible. Willow Tree excel at bleeding edge products that allow them to push boundaries and challenge themselves to keep evolving. How do they do it? They hire the smartest and most passionate people in the industry and give them what they need to keep growing and learning. Willow Tree have all the perks of other leading development shops but what makes them unique is their maker culture, which gives great designers and developers the freedom to produce incredible results. If this sounds like a place that you'd like to work, visit willowtreeapps.com forward slash careers to find out more. Now, Jake, it's over to you. The clock has started. All right, so I am going to talk a little bit about Core Image today. And I wanted to start by just giving a quick overview of what Core Image is for those who haven't used it or who aren't sure what it's for. So the core image is mainly for image processing and the simplest example of that is like putting an instagram filter on a photo and a gpu in a desktop or on in a, on a mobile device can can perform those kinds of alterations on a photo way faster than the cpu can but in order to use the gpu traditionally you've got to jump into opengl which is a lot of boilerplate code and you have to set up a context and it's a lot of work to just get the data for a for a photo from you know AV Foundation into OpenGL, you have to write custom shaders in order to manipulate it. It's, it's a lot of work. And that's where 
core image comes in. Core image makes all of that really, really simple. It's an abstraction layer. It does sit on top of OpenGL or Metal. Uh, these days, a lot more of it's done with Metal. Or some of it on the de- on the OS X is done with OpenCL. Um, but all of those languages are all things you use to you know do processing on the GPU. And so Core Image can do image manipulation way, way faster than doing an equivalent operation on the CPU. And that's that's why Core Image exists. Core Image came out in 2011 with iOS 5. And um, we've had it since then. But in iOS 8, we got custom kernels, which is what I want to talk to today. Custom kernels existed on the desktop. I don't know if immediately when they released Core Image, if it always existed on the desktop. But, but as long as we've had Core Image on the phone... It it's existed on the desktop, and you could do custom filters on the desktop. We just got custom filters last year on the phone, and that makes Core Image a lot more compelling. Core Image has about these days it has about two hundred built-in filters, and these days also the filter set is basically identical between the two between the desktop and the mobile platform. It used to be that there was a lot more available on the desktop, but now there there's parity there's parity between the API, and there's parity between the filters now in core image. And so there's a lot you can do things like, you know, mixing images together. If you think about what Photoshop does, you can do almost anything you can do with Photoshop. You can do with a core image filter, but there was still things you couldn't do with core image. And so there was still a reason to drop into OpenGL or some other language and write your custom. If you needed to do something you couldn't, wasn't available in core image, you'd have to jump out until iOS eight. So with uh, with core image filters, can you use those on if you have like a live video feed happening? Can you use those filters on a video feed as well? Yes, you can, and it's performant enough to do color manipulations in real time on like HD video. So that's the that's the power of the GPU is that it can you can do you can chain core image filters together to kind of get custom effects. So depending on how long that chain is and how complex those filters are, sometimes you can't you can't always do really sophisticated manipulations in real time on video, but anything you can imagine with just like altering color, all that's fine. You can put sepia tone on live video, no problem. These days the devices are so fast you can actually do some pretty sophisticated stuff. I don't know if you guys have seen there's like the edge detection effect, which makes a photo kind of look like a pencil drawing. You can do that in real time on video. So there's a lot you can do with video. And there's also a whole set of APIs as of iOS 9 to use core image with AV Foundation in an easier way. You used to have to use the video data delegate callback, which vends pixel buffers. So you used to have to get raw pixel buffers, import those pixel buffers into core image manipulate them in core image with whatever image filters you wanted and then spit them back out either to the the screen or to a video file. But these days there's actually APIs that you can just attach a core image filter with a block to a composition, which is just a way to mix multiple uh, video files together. You can just attach a core image to a composition and not have to manage all that the buffers and loading it into core image and stuff manually. So you mentioned, Jake, that um, custom filters only arrived on iOS last year, iOS 8. Uh, so prior to that, if you wanted to do something similar to, say, Instagram, for example, um, you, we would, you would have to lean out and, and use your favorite framework, GPU image. We've talked about it several times before. We've had, we actually had Brad on to talk about it uh, in, a, in a previous episode. So I'm curious now, 
sort of what the differences are between, you know, this richer core image that we have available since iOS 8 and, you know, the advantages of, of using one over the other is, is there still a place for GPU image? When would you want to use GPU image instead of core image custom filters? When would you want to use custom filters instead of GPU image? Well, so because GPU image is open source, there's still things that you can do in GPU image that you can't do as easily or at all in core image. One thing that you don't get with core image is raw access to the uh, buffers as they move through the system. And so it's not as easy and sometimes not possible. And it depends. I haven't, I haven't fully explored like the breakdown, but there are filters in GPU image where you are bouncing back and forth between two buffers. So you're, you're performing the same shader operation multiple times in succession until you get kind of an output. One example of that is a, a filter that I contributed, which is the, it's a, a I, I always say Veroni. I'm not sure if that's the right, the right way to pronounce it, but it's the, the filter that makes things look like a stained glass window kind of. Um, that The processing of that filter is in like three or four steps. And the first few steps are all just moving the data back and forth between two buffers and figuring out how to, given a set of points, how do you create the, the like block regions that are all the same color? That is like a process. So you're basically rendering like four and five times, depending on the size of the image, in order to generate the first part. And then it consumes that first part and, and actually looks at the original image and gets the color for the image to, to color each region. I'm not sure if it, I'm describing this right. There's, there's a filter in Photoshop called Crystallize. That's a Veroni filter. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, that's what it looks like. But doing that in core image where you're, where you're moving back, you're using custom shaders and you're moving back and forth and you're ping-ponging between buffers, I'm not sure that that's impossible, but it would be more difficult and it might be impossible. I haven't fully explored that. There are things like that where you just got low level, you're doing like almost computation type things um, to buffers instead of pure image manipulation that are th- that having access to the shaders and the buffers and having control over how that that process goes is an advantage. Um, a second advantage is that the set of filters that Brad has written for GPU image is actually pretty large. And there's some really interesting, really cool stuff there that is not yet implemented in core image. So there's some like line detection and there's some other stuff. There's some machine vision type stuff in core image. There's some machine vision stuff in core image too. But there's some stuff in GPU image that has not yet been implemented in core image. And it's not that you couldn't implement it with core image, but it's already done in GPU image. So there's some there's some things like that where there's still there's still some reasons that GPU image has an advantage. For me personally, I still use GPU image just because I'm familiar with it, and I'm I it's easier for me to manipulate having full access to the source as you do in GPU image. The the big selling point when GPU image was brand new was that you could write custom kernels, and you couldn't do that in core image. So with the advent of co- of custom kernels in core image. It is a lot closer. It is, there are lots of cases where if you're not familiar with either, I would say use core image first. And then if you get stuck with something, then look at, look at GPU image. So can you walk us through what it's like to, to write a custom kernel then? Like how, how does that look? You know, where do you start? Is that being written in Swift? Is it being written in, you know, shader language? Is it some other variation? There is a class called a CI kernel class. And the CI kernel ha- class has two subclasses. One is a CI color kernel and one is a CI warp kernel. 
And if you just want to change, if you if you just want to look at each individual pixel and apply a color manipulation to it, you'll want to use a color kernel. And if you just want to manipulate the vertices, um, if you don't know what that means, it's it's kind of hard to explain. But when you do on a GPU, the first thing you hand the GPU is a set of vertices that describe the geometry that's being rendered. In the case of image processing, it's almost always just a flat plane upon which the image is projected. So if you just want to manipulate those vertices, like if you just wanted to like mirror an image and just flip it so it looked like a mirror image of itself, you could do that with a warp kernel. Uh, you can do more sophisticated things. If you've ever seen a kind of a water effect where it's kind of distorting the image in, in kind of all throughout the image, it looks like you're looking through water, that can be done with a warp kernel by manipulating the vertices. So if you just need to do vertices or if you just need to do uh, color, you use the warp or the color kernel. But if you want to do both, um, then you'd use a CI kernel. So you can use any of those three to write those three classes to write a custom kernel. And what you do is there's a, the initializer is a, it's like CI kernel kernel with string and you just provide it a string, which is your kernel. Now a kernel is just a chunk of code written in the core image kernel language. And the core image kernel language is based on GLSL. And so it's conceptually the same as, as OpenGL, GLSL, or even the metal shading language. It's very conceptually, it's the same as that. And so if you're familiar with graphics shaders and how those are written, um, it's nothing in the core image language is going to be shocking. There's some specific stuff they've added to help um, you work specifically with images but for the most part, it looks the same. And this, and none of this code is very long. Usually a kernel is, I mean, a simple kernel is three or four lines of code. And a sophisticated kernel might be 50 or 100. So these are small snippets of code that you're writing. And what, in the case, the best example would be the color kernel. In the case of a color kernel, it, it basically hands you, inside the kernel, you're handed a source pixel. So this is the color uh, from the source image, and then you apply whatever math to the to the RGB and alpha components of that color, and then you, that's what you return. You return the, another. It's called a vec four, which is just a, a a four float data type, and you just return that pixel color back that you, you you know after the result of your calculations. So in the case of a sepia tone, you're looking at the color and you're kind of adding yellow to it or whatever. In the case of a black and white, you are you know, taking an RGB and there's, there's different ways to make, to take color and go to black and white, but basically you're just making it grayscale instead of whatever color is. So that's, that's kind of the essence of what a kernel looks so like. So if, if the um, core image filter language is pretty close to GLSL, would you think that if GPU image had a, had a filter that you liked a whole lot, that core image was missing, it'd be pretty easy to kind of port that yourself? Yeah. As long as it fit into the kind of one step nature of the core image kernel and like i say you can do multiple kernels and multiple steps in core image too so you could even do that but especially if it was just like a one shot like this is a one rendering step shader that would be super easy and it would you would have no problem moving that over so can you because i know one of the big selling points about gpu image when it when it first came on the scene was that you can chain the filters together is that something that you can do in in core image yeah, and that's actually, I mean, GPU image got that concept from core image. Core, core image came up with that first, where you basically, uh, you have, you know, multiple steps if you want to. So, for example, one thing that you do when you do edge detection, this is a very crude, very simple edge detection that I'm going to describe. But you basically take an image, you turn it to black and white, you blur it, 
and then you combine that blurred version with the black and white version and you do a difference. And so anywhere, like a blue sky, if you blur a blue sky and then you, or sorry, a gray sky after you make it grayscale, if you take the sky that's like a solid color and you blur it and then you diff it with the original, there's no edges there, right? But where it hits the mountains, you've blurred the edge of that mountain. And now when you diff it with the original, you can see that there's like, there's something, a difference there, right? That's kind of a very crude edge detection. And so in order, you can, there is an edge detection filter now, but there wasn't uh, in iOS 5 or 6. And so I did a few times, I created a core, an edge detection core image chain, which is just what I just described. So yes, you can chain the filters together. Now, one cool thing that core image does that GPU image doesn't do is that the, internally they look at the chain you have created and where possible they combine the filters into a single step. So if you have like two steps that are different kinds of color correction, those two can be those, the code from those two steps can be combined into a single rendering step. Um, whereas GPU image, every chain, every filter in the chain is a separate step and each filter is its own rendering step. And so if you know GLSL, that's not a huge problem because you can, you just go in and write your own filter that combines whatever pieces of other filters you want. You can just do that manually. But if you use core image, it will do to the degree it can, it will combine uh, rendering steps automatically for you. So, and, and is there any sort of noticeable differences in terms of performance between, you know, core image and custom fillers and GPU image and custom fillers? I don't know right now. The, in the early days, there were. In early days, many of the core, uh, the GPU image filters would perform faster. You could get the, the Gaussian, I think the Gaussian blur was faster. But I know that, Every time they come out with a new core image framework, every time they update it, they change things. And so you guys remember when we first got iOS 7, there was a lot of blurs. The core image blur got way, way, way faster in order to support all the blurring effects. Um, And it was actually faster than the GPU image uh, Gaussian blur for a while. And so it just depends on the filter. Now core image is backed by metal. And so there might be some performance changes there. Although when we had Brad on, we asked him specifically, do you have any, do you have any, you know, reason to move to metal with GPU image? And he was like, well, you know, the, the CPU savings you get in metal don't necessarily, that's not necessarily the bottleneck in the case of GPU image. So I don't know if the move in core image to metal is as profound. I I just, I don't know. And And it's different depending on what filter you're talking about. So uh, the answer is yes, there are differences, but it's kind of a filter by filter basis. So we've obviously mentioned that you can use um, these custom filters on images and on videos. And I know sort of on the desktop you have OpenCL, which is using the GPU uh, and the shader language to, or something similar to the shader language, to be able to do computations on the GPU rather than on the CPU. Can you do, you know, can you leverage um, or hack, if you want to, um, core image filters to to do the same sort of thing? Or is it purely just for images and videos to do computation yeah. you can but you wouldn't really want to if you were going to do that you'd just go you just jump into metal and use compute shaders in metal um the, the what it would save you in terms of setup is i mean it would save you some setup um there are ways to get so in the case of core image and this is what i mean opencl is doing on some level but if you did have an image and you wanted to perform some computation on it, or even if it wasn't an image, it had nothing to do with image, you just had a buffer of data and you wanted to apply some calculation to it, you've got to take your data and turn it into an image for core image. So you've got to make it a PNG or something, right? Or a CG image ref. 
Uh, and then you've got to take that, run it through your custom kernel, run it through core image, and then it's going to output another CG image ref. And so then you got to get the CG image ref and you got to get access to the, the data behind that and then pull that back into whatever CPU routine you're doing. And so in order to do computation, and that is what, I mean, that is what um, GPGPU is doing, like OpenCL, that's what it's doing, the, the, the metal shaders, that's what they're doing. They're taking your data, turning it into an image buffer, running it through a kernel and then giving you a, a buffer that's a result but it's a little awkward when you've got to change things back and forth between image formats and so even though core image requires less setup in terms of having to set up a metal context and all that um, you do need a core image context but it's easy it's like just a couple lines of code to set up a core image context um, if, if you're at that level you're probably going to look at either OpenGL or OpenCL or metal uh, compute shaders for that task. Okay, good. we've got about a minute left, Jake. So if I wanted to learn more about custom core image filters, where can I find, where's the best information? So the the best information, I recently had to do this for a client and the best thing was something written by Sam Davies for Shinobi Controls. There was his like, I think it was iOS 7 every day or iOS 8 every day for 30 days. And on day, I think 19, he does, he shows you how to put together a custom core image kernel. And that was the first thing that came up when I Googled. And that's a great explanation of all the stuff that I've talked about. Um, another great place to learn about core image though, is um, just this last week, Simon Gladwell came out with a, like a comprehensive core image uh, app that kind of shows you all the different filters and what they do. I can't remember now what it's called. Fun of filteropedia or something like that. So look up flex monkey on Twitter and you'll see he's got, or, or his blog, and you'll see he just came out with a, a core image kind of display app. And the core image team also has something called core image Funhouse that they put out periodically that is also a way to demonstrate filters, but it's not as, not as complete as what Simon Gladwell put out. And it's, I couldn't find it in prep for this podcast. I found a couple of old versions, but I couldn't find an updated version. So yeah, when I was doing the research, I think the oldest version, uh, the most recent version I found was 2013. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, we'll make sure that both those links to Sam's article and Simon's blog go in the show notes so people can check those out. And I think, guys, that's a wrap for this episode. So thanks again for joining us, Andrew. You got it. If you have any feedback or comments on the podcast, then please do get in contact via podcast at raywendlick.com. And don't forget to leave your reviews on iTunes. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you all next time. And that's a wrap. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the RayWendelk.com podcast. We hope you enjoyed it, and don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time.